You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening and welcome. I think we'll begin. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here. And it's a great delight this evening to welcome David Morris. I got in my mind uh, that it would be very interesting to explore phenomenology and Patterson-Ewan, although I have to confess I've tried to explain phenomenology twice this week and realized in my attempts that I actually don't understand it. (laughs) But David has said, please come with wonder, so I'm definitely here with wonder. Um, So here we are, and as far as I'm concerned, which I just had a discussion with a couple of people in the front row here, philosophy and art belong together so perfectly, and I'd love to do a series, so if anybody's interested, please talk to me about possible topics and connections. David Morris has explored the phenomenology of body, mind, life, and nature in numerous publications and presentations, with special attention to the phenomenology of Maurice Merleau-Ponty. Morris is Chair and Associate Professor of Philosophy at Concordia University, Montreal. So we'll have a good Q&A at the end, so please welcome David Morris. Thank you, and and thank you for coming this evening on this cold day to do some uh, thinking and working with art and philosophy. I'd like to thank Gillian McIntyre for having the idea of bringing philosophy and art together once again, or for the very first time, or whatever it is. We've been hanging out a long time together, philosophers and artists and others, and uh, you're not the only one who doesn't understand phenomenology. <clears throat> That's the, the starting point of phenomenology, is not understanding what phenomenology is. I'll try and give a little introduction to it tonight. I'd also like to thank Jim Shedden for um, suggesting my name when it uh, came up, this idea of bringing philosophy and art together. So the title of my talk tonight, and I'd like to emphasize it's just a talk, it's not a thoroughly worked out paper, I'm going to try and work through some things with you. It's bringing things down to earth, uh, locution, a phrase I'm taking from Merleau-Ponty, who thought that phenomenology, a particular kind of philosophy, was trying to bring things down to earth. And I'll say a little bit more about what that might mean in just a little while. Um, What I'm going to try and do in this talk is give a phenomenology of Patterson-Ewan, which is one phenomenological approach to his paintings, and also trying to draw out what I think is a kind of phenomenology, um, a way of grasping the phenomena that I find in Ewan's paintings himself. But to start, I want to just give you an overview of the talk. First of all, I just want to bundle up in a little bit neater way the topic for the evening, which is uh, an effort to bring phenomenology and Patterson-Ewan's painting together as both of them, phenomenology and painting, being efforts to learn about things. And then, uh, sorry, I'll give a very brief introduction to phenomenology. And then I'm going to take you through an example of what I think we can do with phenomenology and painting through what I call an adventure, an adventure that takes us into things and depth. And I'll say more what I mean about adventures a little bit later. And then finally, we'll get to a phenomenology of Patterson-Ewan working through five adventures, let's see if we can do all five, um, in painting and phenomenology with Patterson-Ewan's paintings. So first of all, what I'm trying to do tonight is, because of this invitation, bring together for you phenomenology, a kind of philosophy, and painting, specifically 
the phenomenology of Maurice Merleau-Ponty. He's a contemporary of uh, Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre in France and a very important figure in phenomenology. And Patterson Ewan, who you all know and I expect uh, love uh, in one way or another. His paintings are, are very wondrous indeed. I want to bring these paintings and this philosophy together to try and say something about a kind of sense of wonder that might strike us when we're looking at Ewan's paintings and also what we can learn about them. I'm going to be focusing on, uh, a, or most of my stuff is going to be drawn from a piece of Merleau-Ponty's called Eye and Mind, but I'm not really going to be making any reference to it. In the background is all of his work. I've been working on it for quite a while. And my focus in Ewan's paintings is on his paintings of astronomical and cosmological phenomena versus meteorological phenomena such as storms. And really what I want to do is set up a situation in which we can find phenomenology, a kind of philosophy, learning from and about painters, specifically Patterson Ewan, as they're learning by doing painting, they're learning from and about things, things themselves. This will be our topic, getting back to things themselves. And there's a special emphasis here on, on this from and about locution, because the emphasis here is on learning about things by painting them, by thinking about them, but learning about them from them not learning about them be, by bringing our foreborn prejudices, conclusions, and so on to them, but opening ourselves up to things in a kind of wonder to learn about them from them. So really what I'm trying to do is have a situation in which we work with phenomenology of philosophy and painting as both of them learning from and about things, and more than that, here we get into the deeper philosophical waters, learning about the being of things, the way things are. We're going to learn something about the peculiarities of everyday things versus things like the moon tonight. So that's an overview of what I'm trying to do. And we're now going to move on to step two, which is a very brief introduction to phenomenology, which again is a school, a tradition, a kind or a style of philosophy. And first, let me just say a little bit about the word phenomenology. Like our words uh, biology, psychology, and so on, this word comes to us from Greek words. It has its roots in the Greek language <clears throat> by putting together two words, one of them which we easily translate into our English word phenomena, which is a word designating that which appears to us, things that appear, what we experience, and so on, and the word logos, which is a lot harder to translate. Uh, it's a word that means, in English, word. It also means account. It means reason. It means about eight other things. There's no direct translation. And when we talk about something like biology or psychology or phenomenology, we're talking about a discipline or a study that tries to give an account of something, a reasoned account of something. In the case of phenomenology, what phenomenology tries to give an account of is the phenomena what appears to us, what we experience, what shows up around us in our world. So phenomenology, we can say, is a discipline, a stream in philosophy that works to give an account of phenomena. That's to say it's something that endeavors to learn about the phenomena in order to say something about the phenomena. But a very important thing about phenomenology is this, that it tries to say something about the phenomena by learning from the phenomena what it is that we should say about them. 
how it is we should give an account of them. So that's to say there's, there's sort of two efforts going on in phenomenology at once. One is an effort to give an account of what appears to us. But the other is to give an account that respects things and is responsible to things, that's guided by things in its effort to give an account of them. And in doing that, in, in engaging in the second endeavor, in trying to open itself to a kind of education from things, it learns something more than something that's just about what appears. It learns something about being, about the way things are. And that's how it fits in within philosophy. So I'm not going to say much more about how phenomenology fits in with philosophy. Rather, I'm going to give you another way into what phenomenology does in philosophy by drawing a painterly analogy for phenomenology. So here's what phenomenology is not. Phenomenology is not... It's not like a paint-by-numbers approach to painting things. What happens when you take a paint-by-numbers approach? You've already got a finite set of colors that you've decided are the colors that you're going to use to paint things. And you've already got a view of how things show themselves. You've got a view of what space is like. You've got a view of how it is that you're going to depict things. And all you have to do is fill in the blanks. I'm going to talk about this as an effort at framing things. Paint-by-numbers frame things in the way that you frame somebody when you're trying to rig a case in court against them. When you frame somebody in court, you're sort of rigging things so everything goes against them because you've got a prejudiced view of them as being guilty. Somebody who's framed stands accused of being such and such. And in a paint-by-numbers approach, what we're trying to paint stands accused of having such and such colors in advance before you even give a gander at it. Similarly, The kind of philosophy that phenomenology contests takes a prejudiced view, and phenomenology is trying to undo that. So what's the painterly analogy for phenomenology? Well, Cézanne is one of Merleau-Ponty's favorite uh, painters, and here I think you can see that it's kind of a strange way to paint things, especially if you're not familiar with Cézanne. You were seeing this kind of painting for the very first time. It's very strange, and it's very strange because Cézanne is endeavoring to learn from things how to paint them. And he's sort of following along with them. Of course, that's maybe an exaggeration, but the, th- what I'm trying to contrast here is a, is a um, paint-by-numbers approach that's already decided how things should look versus an effort to throw yourself open to things and paint them as they show up in their own way. So this is to say I'm trying to draw painting and phenomenology together as two efforts that we engage in where we're trying to learn from and about things by wonder. In the case of painting, certain kinds of painting like Cézanne's in an effort to paint things, and in phenomenology in an effort to say things about things, conceptualize them, say something that's adequate to the things themselves. And here I want to say that both painting and phenomenology involve us in wondrous adventures with things. And I'm trying to emphasize here the with, that we're adventuring with the things. And I'm trying to use adventure in kind of a strange way, perhaps. Not adventure in the sense of, you know, the adventurer who's going to go out and conquer the world and bring her or his views to the places that she ventures into. They're new places, but the, you know, the adventurer that you see in the Tarzan movie or whatever comes in with a worldview that they're going to impose on everything. I try to draw on a sense of the advent of things. There's a sense that Merleau-Ponty sometimes talks about where he's talking about the way things advene upon us, 
We're here and things make an advent into us, upon us, in concert with our ways of engaging with them. And in that way of opening ourselves up to the advent of things, we're having an adventure in which we follow along with things, in which they're part of the adventure, sort of like the imaginary adventures that kids have playing along with one another, except we're playing along with things in this kind of adventure. So here I'm trying to talk about adventures in which we follow things, we follow along with things to the way they really show themselves. Okay, And here I'm trying to capture what I think phenomenologists are trying to do in their philosophy, but in a way that brings phenomenology and painting into proximity. And just to give you an example, I think with, say, Monet's paintings of haystacks, we find something like this, having an adventure with things. Monet's taking a really long time to just hang out with these haystacks and follow along with them and figure out the way they show up. And it's far from a paint-by-numbers approach that says, hey, hay is hay-colored. It's going to have this kind of color, and this is the way it's going to look, and I'm just going to paint according to my views of what haystacks should look like. He's trying to figure out how they show themselves with these wonderful colors, with these shapes that move in and out in different ways and different light. So I see painting and phenomenology alike as engaging in what I'm calling these adventures with things, And in doing so, I want to say that painting and phenomenology bring things down to earth, which is to say they're engaged in an effort to learn about things, but learn about things with them, learn about things with them as participants in the learning process. So instead of presupposing a kind of mastery and ability to paint things or know about things, there's an effort to open up and have them move you and move along with them from here, from where we are, from our situation in relation to them. What do I mean by that? What's at stake in this learning from here? Well, what's at stake is working with them as we engage with them optically, visually, conceptually, and so on, in a kind of linkage and dance with them, versus painting things by numbers or the philosophical equivalent would be not trying to learn about things with them here on earth, but drawing on preconceptions that belong to what we could call the heaven of ideas. You know, trying to, sometimes philosophers, well, most of the time philosophers are trying to get things right. And because it's so hard to do that, we could say that at a certain point in history, it was realized or thought that the way to get things right would be to find some realm of things that would be self-evident, It would give us a solid foundation for getting things right. And that would be what I'm calling the heaven of ideas. Okay, so that's that's an effort to give you a sense of what phenomenology is by drawing it into an analogy with painting that I'm going to keep on coming back to. And now we are at our third step in the uh, talk for tonight where I'm going to first of all have some water. Because we're about to embark on our first adventure where we're going to venture with things and see how they appear as things and see how they appear in depth. And this is my effort to give an example of phenomenology and painting as bringing things down to earth. Here I'm going to be drawing on some things that Merleau-Ponty has worked on that I've worked on too, but I'm going to convey it in a completely different way by... uh, Developing my point by looking at, first of all, some pictures that are computer-generated and then looking at some paintings. So this is a computer-generated 
diagram of an apartment. I'm sorry it's a little bit fuzzy, but to get the real one, I've had to pay some extraordinary amount of money. I just found this uh, Googling around on, on the web. And what we see in this picture is a computer-generated diagram that renders in visual form a set of numbers that fully specifies this apartment and its content, all the walls, all the things in the apartment. I'm going to be reading through a little bit of this because this was a tricky point. I wanted to get it right and find a good way to say it. So, again, we're, we're looking at a diagram where there's a set of numbers behind the scenes that specifies everything in that apartment. And this is a rendering of that. So I want to talk about that set of numbers as constituting an ideal model of the apartment. We could even imagine writing down that set of numbers as one very, very, very long number, say with 80,000 digits. Okay? That one number would specify the apartment we're looking at, and one with some slightly different digits, a slightly different apartment, and so on. So the, the key thing I'm trying to get here is there's some one number that specifies this thing in full detail. And I'm going to call that number the idea, or the numerical ideal of the apartment. Okay? Somebody who was a real devotee of such numbers, studied them all the time, might be able to grasp this whole apartment just in looking at that one number in the way that, you know, remember in the days of LPs, vinyl with grooves in them? You know, there are apparently some people around who could take a look at, uh, at a record and just from looking at it tell you, oh, it's Swan Lake or the Goldberg variations or whatever. So imagine somebody who could see in that one number this apartment. This is to convey the sense that that one big number would really contain everything that's there in that apartment. But now what I want to let us do is compare that numerical ideal of the apartment with a real apartment by also taking a look at this diagram. So let me just uh, click here to get some labels, the balcony in the back bedroom. And here I just want to observe that in the numerical ideal, that one big number, the bedroom and the balcony, they're all there at once, at one and the same time. And they're present in that big number in the same way as one another. Okay? Similarly, the front and back sides of all the walls, they're all present there in this one big number, all at once in the same way at one time. So again, to put this a slightly different way, in the numerical ideal, everything is given all at once. Everything is fully present all at once, fronts and backs of things alike. But here's the problem, right? This diagram is an effort to show us, to render in visual form, that numerical ideal. And as soon as we try to show things as being given in the way that they're given in this numerical ideal, Right? In the numerical ideal, everything is given all at once. As soon as we try and show this, we run into a problem. We run into trouble. And that's precisely what we can notice in this diagram. Right? So in the diagram, you can see that to show the balcony as being given together with the bedroom or the front sides of walls as being together with the back sides, the person who rendered this had to render walls and things as translucent, as quasi-see-through. Okay? And if you keep on pushing this, thinking about this, trying to visualize it, you'd notice, I think, that if you really wanted to show things as all present, all at once, they'd have to be completely transparent, because otherwise they get in the way of one another. <clears throat> and if you rendered them as completely transparent, of course, you wouldn't be able to see them at all. And so the point here is that to see all things, 
as all present. You have to see right through them. And that means not really seeing them or perceiving them and not really encountering them as things. And that's because the very reality of things is to be in the way of one another, to not be seeable or even touchable all at once. Another way to put this is that things have a depth or thickness that's unsurpassable, that we have to pass and push through with our body. That thick depth is the very reality of things. That, that, that's what gives us an encounter with them as real. So if you can imagine a hallucination, Macbeth, for example, chasing after that hallucinatory dagger or a pink elephant floating through the room, hallucinations like that precisely lack thickness. They're mere facades. They don't have any other side that you can get to. They don't have any thickness that you have to push through or encounter or struggle with. So the point here is that to see or perceive things as all present all at once is in fact to not see or perceive, to not have a body, a place or a position. To see or perceive things all at once is to not be in the thick of things. And the diagram's failure to show us the real thickness of things gives us a hint that the reality of things precisely involves an unsurpassable thickness, a way in which things keep exceeding and surpassing us in time and in place. Right? We're finite. And our finitude and inability to see everything all at once and get all the sides of everything all at once, that's precisely part and parcel of encountering things as real. And the diagram, I think, fails to show us the real thickness of things because it's trying to step back from things. It's sort of going up to a bird's eye view, looking at things from above, and render things in a way that's governed by this numerical ideal and an effort to present as much as possible of the apartment at, as one, at once. So that's, that's a, a bunch of claims about what's going on in this diagram in relation to the numerical ideal. And now I want to contrast this with lived, perceived, real depth, coming back, first of all, to this Cezanne painting, which has depth in it, and depth in it in quite a different way. It's not like depth as things placed in some already given three-dimensional projection or container. He's making depth emerge out of the way that these fruits push and jostle in front of one another through the way they wrap color and light around themselves, through the ways in which they get in the way of one another. And I think he gives you a real sense of, um, you know, the bottom of that bowl isn't at a particular point in an already given three-dimensional space. It's deeper and farther away from you because you'd have to push through and move the fruit out of the way and get the fruit to stop piling on top of itself in order to get to the bottom of it. And there's a real... I mean, we could talk a long time about how depth works in here, and I'm not really up to it. But... Uh, it's, it's almost like he's giving you a sense of having to swim through things, like pushing through water to get through things, and he gives you a sense of depth in that way versus an idealized depth. Here's another example from Giorgio Morandi, quite an extraordinary painter. And this, this one is really interesting because if you just took a look at the walls and so on, like, like if you tried to not see the, the vases and whatever they are huddled in the middle of this, you probably wouldn't have much of a sense of depth in this painting at all because the walls and the plane of the table don't really have any of the sorts of things that usually make you think you're looking into a container. And, and to my mind in this painting, it's like these, 
these objects are sort of huddled together against the threat of nothingness or something like that. And, and they're so close to one another that the space between them becomes amplified. And, and they're in front of one another, in the way of one another, and that huddling together almost to the point of slumping into one another to keep themselves by, from being eroded by the weight of reality. That gives you a sense of depth in this painting. And this is all to say that painting brings things down to earth, I think, first of all, by engaging with our bodies and the ways that we uh, encounter the world through our bodies, not by dealing with idealized numbers or projections or things like that, by being immersed in things and having to move through their thickness by being in the thick of things. And here, I just want to bring up a quote from Merleau-Ponty in I and Mind, where he says, quoting the poet Valry, that the painter takes his body with him. And indeed, Merleau-Ponty says, we can't imagine how a mind could paint. It's by lending his body to the world that the artist changes the world into paintings. And so Merleau-Ponty thinks that there's something important for philosophy to be learned from painting because painting paints and encounters things from here. And it shows us something like the, the, the reality of things isn't going to be captured by an ideal. It's going to be in the thickness of things that we encounter through our ways of moving with them in situations, in places, and so on. So painting has something that it can teach philosophy because it engages with things in this kind of openness that involves our real situation down here on Earth. And also because it involves a kind of wonder, a kind of openness to things, because certain kinds of painting at least tries to be guided by things in the efforts to paint them. And so here are two quotes. First of all, one from Paul Clay. This is something that Merleau-Ponty cites in Eye and Mind. And here, Clay is talking about how sometimes when he's in a forest, he feels that it's the trees that are looking at him, not him looking at the trees. And that he, he feels like he has to be opened up or pervaded by the universe. And I think this is part and parcel of his painting practice. He has to feel that he's not quite the one in control, the one who already knows how to see things. He rather has to open himself up to things. The second quote is from our painter for the evening, Patterson Ewan. And this is uh, in one of the catalogs on Ewan. This is him narrating an incident in his driveway in London where he looks up and he sees a tornado coming. And uh, he, he thinks to himself, isn't that great? Isn't that great? And he talks about being in awe and this wonderful phrase that he's in a state of startled wonder. There's really something interesting about that phrase because it's something outside of him that's startling him into wonder, but it's not startling him in a way that captures him according to something that he already knows how to do. It's not that he already knows how to respond to or see this thing. It's sort of like he thought he knew how to look at things, but all of a sudden there's this category of thing that he's never seen with his own body and his own eyes before. And it's just putting him into a state of awe, startling him into a new kind of wonder that I don't think he even knew he had. There's this interesting thing about wonder is that you don't know how to wonder in advance. If you're really wondering, part of what's wondrous about it is being in a new state of wonder. And I think that's what Ewan is getting at. And then the next beautiful line is that he says that it took him five years to translate that state into a painting. And that's the 
<coughs> the painting that, that comes out of this. But I think phenomenologists can share something in this. You get into this state of startled wonder and it takes five years to figure out what it means. Edmund Husserl was a sort of founding father of phenomenology, founding figure in phenomenology, and uh, he never actually figured out how to say what he wanted to say. So uh, this is to bring us to Ewan in his painting practice as bringing things down to earth and as being in the thick of things. And I, in particular, wanted to draw to your attention to something about his painting practice in his large plywood paintings, which is that he used to paint these on a vertical surface. But then an incident that's described in a number of catalogs is of his router coming away from the surface and almost getting into his neck, and then he realized, I can't do it that way. So he started painting with the plywood horizontal. And here you can, I found a picture of him standing at the side uh, working with his router, but in the catalogs and upstairs in the, in the video, you can see that he actually clambers onto the top of this and kneels down with pads on his knees and does his routing in the middle. So really, he's taking his body with him in quite an extraordinary way. It's a very tactile kind of way of painting. Originally, he was going to be um, making these gouges in order to take prints from them, as in Japanese wood prints. And then he realized, oh, the thing that I'm gouging, that's the real painting, that's the real work. But just we're going to come to paintings of the moon by him, and I just want you to have the image of him kneeling in the center of this thing and sort of feeling his way through it with his body in the middle of it. And I think something interesting is going on there because you don't have the sort of thing you usually imagine painters doing, which is stepping back from the surface and seeing the whole thing that they're working on. I think there's some ways in which, after he's planned things, he's really working through this with his body in the middle of things. And this is taking things down to earth and being in the thick of things in a really earthy kind of way. I don't have better words for it. So here, I, I said what we can get out of painting is bringing things down to earth. And we're going to work with Ewan for a bit. This is taking a little bit longer than I said, so we might have to lose one of our adventures. But <laughs> we'll see. Uh, the thing, though, we're going to be following Ewan as painting things and doing something like we saw Cezanne or Randy doing. But Ewan, let's face it, he paints really strange things for a painter. It's not, you know, a portrait of somebody who's sitting there in the room or a still life or, you know, olive oil bottles on a mantle or whatever or, or even a mountain in the distance. He's painting the moon, stars, vanishingly huge uh, meteorological phenomena like tornadoes and so on. They're quite strange things. We're going to focus on the astronomical things. So there's going to be a question in the background, and I'm hoping to work, start working out some answers. What does it mean to get in the thick of such strange things, and what is being brought down to Earth when Ewan does his paintings? So just to, to summarize a little bit, I was trying to give you a sense of what philosophy can learn from the kind of painting that we see in Cézanne and Morandi, something about the way things are, that they have a kind of thickness that can't be idealized, a kind of reality that can't be idealized. And now we're going to try and have some adventures with Ewan that draw out similar sorts of lessons about the way things are. So that's step four. And some more water. So I've set up five adventures. Some of them worked out more than others. And these are all really inspired by a real true adventure that I'd been having before Gillian even called me, which has to do with the fact that the Galerie Samuel Lelou 
in Montreal on Sherbrooke Street, which is right around my office, happens to have this exhibit, which has in it, as you can see in the window, a walking woman. In the background, there's some Anselm Kiefer, but there are two Ewans sitting there right in this window that I walk by every day. So there's this very weird situation. I could spend an hour talking about it, an unusual situation of walking past paintings from a distance in a streetscape and having a different kind of moving relation to paintings than you usually do in a gallery where either you're moving to focus on this painting or moving past it to get to another one. And here, I'm moving past this painting on the street and walking by these paintings, these huge paintings of the moon, sometimes at night when there's the moon outside, and sometimes where there are these other big circles from like construction tunnels and so on sitting out on the street because Montreal's always under construction. And I was thinking about Patterson Ewan before I got this call, and it really influenced my adventures that I'm going to bring to light for you right now. The first adventure takes us into a contrast between things and ultra-things. So to start you on this adventure, I'm first going to show a spontaneous iPod pixelated movie that I made in the gallery, Samuel Lelou, which might show up as a little bit jerky. So that's trying to give you a sense of what it's like to move through this gallery in relation to this painting. And it's not the thing I'd want it to make because there's a sculptor, sculpture sitting right on the floor in front of it in almost the worst place, <laughs> unfortunately. But uh, one thing to notice there is how, at a certain point, it does look very sort of moon-like. It bulges out a little bit, and when you move up close to it, it sort of feels like you're flying through a lunar landscape. But the main thing that I wanted you to notice is that you know, this painting is a thing, and when you move in the gallery, you change your relationship to the thing. You get to see it in different perspectives, in different sides. You can see it from the side. You can see it from the front. You can move off in different directions. You can move up close. You can move farther away. And, and so you're not just seeing an image, an imaginative image that Ewan has painted. You're also seeing that as placed as a thing in a gallery. And I want to contrast this with a different kind of experience that you might have had. I was trying to find a good movie of this. And this isn't a good one. This is somebody's car. This is from YouTube. Somebody filming the moon at night. And really what I wanted to get was this thing that I used to have as a kid, traveling up Bathurst Street to my grandfather's house on a Friday night for a Shabbat dinner. Um, you know, looking up through the top of the car, and the moon is chasing us. No matter where we go in Toronto, the moon is right there chasing us. You know, it, it's like it's never going to go away. It's just, how is that thing following us? How did it know how to do that? I remember that experience quite vividly. And the thing that's obviously going on here is you, when you're moving around on Earth, aren't getting different perspectives on the moon. You can't get a different perspective on the moon. And I can bring that out. This is exactly the same video with the ground and everything moved out. And except for the jiggling of the camera, you can see, well, you can sort of see, the moon isn't really moving relative to the car. It's, you know, if this was absolutely steady, the moon would stay in exactly the same place. So this brings me to some things that I want to say on things versus ultra things. The things that you see around you, the painting as a thing, these are things, but the moon is an ultra thing. And what Ewan is doing is he's literally bringing the moon down to earth by painting it. He's doing this very, very strange thing, this very wondrous thing. So Ewan is doing two things at once. I'm going to violate the English language by saying that he things the moon. He makes the moon into a thing. 
And at once, by making the moon into a thing, he's showing us how it's really unthingly. He's showing us that it's what Merleau-Ponty, following some psychologists, would call an ultra-thing. By that, Merleau-Ponty means a thing that's so distant that it's beyond any of the usual things we encounter and is thus quite peculiar. Okay, how is it peculiar? Well, I think Ewan helps us understand its peculiarities when he brings things down to earth. He helps us understand a point about the identity of everyday things around us versus cosmological things, things that belong to the grander order of the cosmos. Here's what I think he lets us notice. He lets us notice that things have their identity in the way we move with them. You know, part of what makes this really be a cup is the way I can handle it, turn it around to the other side, or move around to the other side of this dais, or realize that Patterson Ewan's painting isn't a hallucination that I'm seeing, but a real thing in the room, because I can move around and get different perspectives on it. So the point here is that it's moving with things that reveals their identity and reveals them as real. And that's especially because movement reveals things as continually having hidden sides and depths that they can reveal to us. Which is to say, real things aren't available to us such that we can get them all at once, like we can the idealized apartment. Okay? And the hallucination is unreal because it doesn't have any hidden sides. Right? So Macbeth sees the dagger appearing before him, the handle toward him, and he keeps on moving to it, and all he keeps on seeing is the handle. He can't get to the other side. But what's interesting is with the hallucination, Macbeth can move to where the hidden side would be. And the problem is all he finds is the front side, the side that he's been seeing all along. And in that experience, the reality of this thing doesn't show up. But it's quite different with the moon. Why? With the moon, we can't move to where the hidden side would be. Okay? No matter where we move, we only see one side of the moon. But the moon isn't any less real for not showing us or not letting us see its hidden side. Why? Well, it's this peculiarity of, a, of it as an ultra thing. It moves with us in such a way that it shows that we can never reach the place where its hidden side would be. Right? So hallucinations don't let us get to the hidden side, but they let us get to the place where the hidden side would be. The moon doesn't even let us get to the place where the hidden side would be. And I think really the moon is showing us that there are places where you can't go. Or it's showing us I'm beyond place altogether. I'm not part of the place that you inhabit and the place that you move around in. It's totally outside of the scope and sphere of what we movingly engage with. And in that way, it shows up as this peculiar thing, this ultra thing that can chase you through the night no matter where you are in Toronto, unlike anything else that's here on Earth. Okay? So here, I want to bundle this up into some results, the end of our first adventure. Here are what, what, what I'm thinking about as results. In engaging with Patterson Ewan's painting in this way and noticing what's going on, we notice that the moon is totally beyond our place. It's totally beyond reach. And yet, amazingly, wondrously, Ewan brings the moon down to earth by painting it, by this imaginative, expressive activity with plywood routers and paint. And I think that's where we catch a sense of wonder. 
regarding the wondrousness of the moon as now being painted and reached. And, you know, I always get this wondrous sense when I'm looking at Patterson Ewan's paintings, and I think I can very much see it in most of the bodies of the people who go into the gallery. But there's something really gripping about these paintings. And I'm trying to sort of play with what's behind that. And I think part of it is that something that's inherently beyond our reach and totally beyond our place is now brought within the scope of our movements, within the scope of our engagements, and yet as something that really shouldn't be there. So it's sort of teetering between various states of being a thing, an ultra thing, and so on. I, I don't really have this fully worked out. But I think it also gives us this move of Ewan's. It gives us an insight and a sense of wonder about the earthiness, earthiness of things and of perception. So at once it makes you realize how precious these things here are around you and how earthy our engagement with them is perceptually. And it sort of gives you this bonus thing of giving you the moon that would be totally beyond the earth right here in the gallery. And yet, of course, you realize it's not the moon. So part of what's going on here is he's giving you an imaginative experience with the moon. And it's not just a photo representation of the moon. It's sort of him thinking through what it's like to engage with the moon through his own body, gouging things in this um, plywood and distributing paint on the surface. And also it's mediated by mathematical and scientific books and all sorts of other things as well. So that's, that's the end of this first adventure where I was just exploring the difference between things and ultra things and the way that Ewan is sort of mixing them up and getting us to have a different sense of uh, engagement with things around us. Now, a shorter adventure about place and scale or place and scale together. And here, um, I just wanted to start with, first of all, with a picture once again of the, uh, the full moon painting in the Lalu Gallery. And uh, one of the interesting things you can see about it is it's sitting on the ground. Hasn't been hung on the wall. This is Montreal. Maybe if you hung it on the wall, the building would fall down. <laughs> I shouldn't say things like that. But it, clearly it's too heavy to put up on the wall. And that, I think, there, there's just something very interesting about that because I think I want to say that when the painting is down on the floor, it has a certain size that you encounter metrically in terms of the height of things like people or trees that are upright on the earth that are grounded. But as soon as you lift these paintings up and put them on the wall, they no longer have a size that's to be measured in that way. They have what I'm going to think of as a scale. right? And what I'm thinking of as a scale is sort of their own internal measure. They're big, but not too big. One student of mine pointed this out about music, that you, know, you can count stuff by metronome, in music, or you can say something like allegro ma non troppo, which is fast but not too much. You know, sort of like these are big but not too big, but when you put them down on the ground, you can see they're really huge. And I was able to stand beside this, and you know, it's eight feet high, it's really huge, but as soon as you put it up on the wall, it sort of moves off into another domain where you're not measuring it by height, but getting a sense of a huge scale of it that's related to you and how sort of the scope of your body, the sweep of your body, how quickly it swings back and forth as you move around with your own measured step. You get a sense of how big it is in relation to the way that you move with it. And what I wanted to point out here is that I think you and... I mean, surely this partly has to do with the sizes of plywood that are available. But the sizes of plywood that are available also have to do with the size of you know, what two human bodies can carry and how they can move about with something. 
And Ewan, I think, has picked a really excellent size for bringing an ultra thing down to earth. Because if it was very tiny, when you would move in relation to it, it would do a lot of shuffling back and forth as you made very fine-grained movements. But here, this invites you into a kind of sweep where it's really sort of filling you up with it in a way that makes it appear vast, but not vast in the way of an ultra thing like the moon. Vast in a way that you can encompass in the sweep of moving back and forth in a gallery, but also in a way that can absorb you in it so that you can move up very close to it. And, you know, when, when I'm up close to it, I feel like, you know, almost like the astronauts may be moving over the moon. The, the astronauts who've actually moved over the moon in their lunar capsule, they're the people who I think have experienced the move, moon as something like a thing, a very weird thing. Or they're experiencing the moon as a thing in the way that we experience the earth as a thing when we move over it in an airplane. And another thing that I was feeling when coming up close to the painting like this is almost looking down at the earth from an airplane. Right? So I, I was... What, what I'm thinking about here is part of what's important to Ewan's painting and part of what makes it work with this earlier adventure with things and ultra things is having this very precise scale that relates to the way you move around with things, that invites a certain kind of engagement. And it's because they are there on that scale that the sense of wonder about the moon being brought down to earth is instilled in us. I think if it was tiny, you wouldn't get the same sense of wonder. And just to illustrate what I'm getting at in another way, let's come back to Morandi, whose paintings, if you've seen them, they're very tiny and delicate. And they invite you to come up with them up close, and when you move with them very gently, you know, just jiggling your head around, you, you, you get the sense of what's going on in them. And they invite the kind of minute movements that you would use when you're engaging with things like olive bottles and boxes of soap yourself. There's a different kind of movement that's invited by Patterson Ewan's paintings. So, again, these are scales. I don't want to compare them metrically in terms of how big they are on a meter stick. But they're just the Morandi scale and the Ewan scale are just right for doing what they're doing and exploring the kinds of things that they're exploring. And the other thing here that I want to emphasize is both of these paintings require that you interact with things in one place that encompasses you both. And the place has its sense because of a kind of scale that's invited by the paintings. So the place of the art gallery in the Morandi, case, in the Morandi setting versus the Ewan setting it invites a different kind of movement in the bodies with a different kind of rhythm and sweep. And I think the way we move around with the Ewan paintings uh, really is part of the magic and, and wonder of them. And if you went into a gallery, I think you would see the very different kinds of movements that are invited and the different kinds of clustering of people. So the result of this uh, second adventure is that seeing and perceiving things, what, what we're noticing here is that seeing and perceiving things isn't something that we pull off on our own or in our own heads. It's rather the case that seeing or perceiving things is a joint operation or movement of bodies, things, and places together. To get Ewan's paintings as paintings of the moon, you have to move with them in a certain kind of place, with a certain kind of rhythm, with a certain kind of sweep, and that gives you a sense of the kind of thing that Ewan is trying to get at in his painting. 
And what I've been trying to emphasize is that that kind of movement has a determinate place scale and time scale. Right? It requires a certain kind of measure, a certain kind of time that also points to us as having a determinate place within the cosmos. And your determinate place within the cosmos is felt in a very different way when you're engaged with things in an art gallery or Ewan's paintings versus looking at the moon chasing you in the night. So this last point, that things have a certain place and scale in which they show up as the things that they are, the moon versus the olive oil bottle versus the painting in the gallery, I think Ewan is bringing us into a kind of encounter with that. And that takes us into two more adventures, one having to do with what I'm going to call felt displacement versus the cosmos. And maybe I'll um, do this one a little bit more quickly, because I think what's going on here, precisely because Ewan is bringing things down to Earth, he's sort of displacing, uh, bringing the moon down to Earth. He's displacing us from our usual place in the cosmos, which is down here looking up at this big thing chasing us through the night. It's sort of like, it's almost like you're flown to the moon in an instant. But at the same time, of course, you're back here down on Earth, and it's sort of like you're doing a cosmic kind of double take. And you're also realizing that something uh, Aristotle had said might be true, that um, Aristotle had divided the cosmos into the sublunary sphere of things down here on Earth versus the sphere of things in the orbit of the, the moon and beyond. And of course, when we get to Newton, people start making fun of him for, for doing that because things work the, uh, the same way everywhere. But it's really not the case that you can engage with things up at the level of the moon in the way you can engage with things down here. There is a kind of order to the cosmos. And there's a certain limit to the way we can place things and engage with them that we notice when we see the moon chasing us through the night. And I think that Ewan is sort of jiggling us back and forth in and around this issue. And he's giving us at once a sense of how the cosmos is an ordered place. And this here place on Earth has its own proper domain and scale and, and character and so on. And yet we imaginatively can engage with things beyond this. And not just in the manner of scientists by painting things. So uh, I'm going to skip over to adventure number four, which is just, in all of this, he's also giving us a sense of our bodily emplacement. You might not notice this explicitly when you're in the art gallery engaging with Ewan, but all of these moves that I've been thinking about really sort of point their fingers back at you as here in this gallery, engaging in this kind of perceptual dance with the painting, following after the trail of Ewan, who engaged in a perceptual dance with the world around him and the moon and the wood and the paint in order to make this thing for us. So there's a sort of displacement that occurs when we see an ultra thing like the moon that's beyond my place altogether, There's a displacement that happens when that's brought down to Earth. A displacement that we feel when we're moving with this here painting right in this gallery and yet encountering it as a painting of an ultra thing. There's something that's really, I think, a little bit perceptually odd 
in this, if we're encountering this as a painting of something that's on a cosmic scale. And I think what that does is, in feeling this and reflecting on it and working through it, it brings the idea of me or you, whoever it is that's looking at this, the idea of the perceiver down to earth. Or it brings us down to earth like precisely by sort of flying us to the moon and still having us in the gallery. It brings down the idea that we're perceiving things here on earth. We're perceiving things here as bodies who are rooted on earth. We move around, but we're really rooted in this place. And our every encounter with things depends upon our having a common situation with them and moving around with them in places. And this kind of move, this is the move that I was talking about as phenomenology in painting is bringing things down to earth. And Husserl says that we should uh, find, go back to the things themselves. And William Carlos Williams in numerous poems talks about no ideas but in things. He's trying to find ideas in things. And that's what I'm trying to suggest is going on in these peculiar moves that Ewan is pulling off of painting things that aren't the kinds of things that we really encounter and displacing us and wrapping, up, wrapping us up in all these complicated moves. He's, I think, getting us to notice that not only are there no ideas but in things, but there's no body or identity of things but in our moving in place with things. And oddly enough, he's getting us to notice this precisely by engaging us with things that we can't move around with. Comets, suns, moons, etc. All of this very much reminded me of uh, Neruda's uh, suite of poems, Residence on Earth, and I won't go into that, but the, the title captures the point. You know, Ewan's peculiarly, by painting cosmic things, I think getting us to notice our residence on Earth because of the wonder that struck up in us when we can move around with something like a painted image of the moon, which isn't. Like, part of what's going on here is it's not, you know, it's not a photograph made by a machine of a moon. It's something that somebody did in person with their body. And so it's almost as if the moon is being brought in person into the gallery through the, the work of Ewan. One very quick final adventure, which relates to all the things that I've been talking about, which is an adventure in lighting in the lit. I've been talking a lot about movement, our movement with things, and how our movement in thing, with things in places is crucial to the identities of the things that we encounter and how the moon is very peculiar in that respect because we can't move with it in the same, thing, the same way we move with other things. And again, Ewan's move is to let us move with it by his having moved with the moon in a different way. One of the other things that happens when we move through things is... Um, the way they're lit up can change. So I can move this, this um, Kleenex into and out of the light, and sometimes it moves into the shade, sometimes it moves out of the shade, but peculiarly enough, I still see it as a piece of white Kleenex, even as I move it around with all these changes of lighting happening. And when we move around things here on Earth, we can, um, by moving them or looking at other sides of them, we can affect changes in the way that they're lit up, or we can turn on the lighting in the room, dim it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's very obvious when you're looking at the cosmological phenomena that Ewan is painting, uh, we can't do that with them. You can't change the way the moon is lit up by the sun. You can wait, and the way that it will be lit up will change. And I think that's what he engages with in the wonderful painting, Many Moons. Sorry for the very uh, bad 
image of it. It's a little bit hard to photograph too, I bet, because it's got that shiny uh, metal in the background that reflects light back to you. So it sort of involves you in this lighting lit stuff at the very same time as it sort of gets you to notice that these many moons, that's, this isn't one moon seen in different light by moving around. Or it's not even one moon that you'd see on one evening just waiting for it to go through all these amazing colors. Um, these are you know, atmospheric colors that would happen at different times with the moon that he's reminded of by the, the light in Bermuda off the water and stuff like that. And another thing that comes to, to play here is that um, most of the things that we see around us are lit up by something else. Right? The moon is lit up by the sun, but the sun isn't lit up by anything else. The sun is a surface that shines. right? And this painting, The Surface of the Sun, um, it's kind of extraordinary, first of all, because you, you have no sense of being distant from the sun in this painting. Like He doesn't show you the edges of the sun. You don't approach it as an object out there. It's just this lit surface. And in so many of his paintings um, of cosmological phenomena, you're, you're, you're looking at things that light themselves up. And there's something strange going on when you see these in the gallery, and as you move around, the light on them sort of changes, but also, I don't quite know how he does it, but he pulls off these amazing coloristic moves with his painting. And, and you know, his sun really does shine, and his moon really does shine. So it's doing, it's, it's again this funny move of, I don't quite know how to put it, well, maybe, maybe it's doing this sort of double-take thing. It's at once something here in the gallery that's being lit up by the lights in the gallery and behaving like other things, and yet it's sort of stepping out of the framework of everyday things and being there as something that, that approximates to something that itself shines from within and that steps out of the usual lighting-lit relationship through which we encounter things. Right? So when we encounter the color of things in the everyday world, we're encountering the color of things through the light that's falling upon them. And it's sort of like we're noticing two things or we're engaging in two things at once. The color of the thing and the color of the light that's falling on them, and we're able to get color constancy through that complex tangle of two terms coming together in a complicated system. But the point is that the sun isn't part of that lighting-lit system. And at one and the same time, Ewan is, in painting the sun, bringing it into that kind of lighting lit system, and at the same time, reminding you that the sun exit that system, and I think he's partly doing that by his amazing color ability. Um, just one last thing, and then I'll end. It's a six adventure, which is time scale. <clears throat> okay? The comet is seen by Giotto, the storms, all of these compress for you something that happens on an enormous time scale into a moment and gets the movement into it all at once. So what I've been trying to draw out for you, like I'm just trying to notice what I think Ewan is getting us to notice in his engagement with things. And I think, I think that might help in drawing out some of the wondrousness of his paintings, but also what I've been trying to do sort of on my more philosophical side is following Ewan's lead in a way that gets us to notice, notice how important our being here on earth is to our encounters with things around us and how something very different gets opened up by Ewan when he 
pulls these amazing painterly moves of imaginatively and expressively painting these objects that are totally beyond our place, usually only encounterable via the mechanisms of our technology. And he, he reimagines them with the most earthy of devices, you know, wood, routers, pigment, and so on, in this scale that's big but not too big by sort of feeling around in the middle of these wooden landscapes with his body to find the grooves and valleys and so on that'll make these things become present for us in the gallery. So there's a kind of magic there where at once the moon and sun are present and at once the the trick of the magic is sort of being revealed to us and that gives us a sense of the wondrousness of perception in general and the wondrousness of our place in the cosmos. So thank you very much. <clears throat> I guess I'll, I'll take questions. That was a little bit longer. A microphone. Uh, we'd like to use microphones because we are recording this talk. We'll put it on the website, and I personally need to listen to it again. So <laughs> if anybody has, has a question, just put your hands up, and we'll come to you. Dave, thanks very much. Thanks, Jim. Um, is, it, is it conceivable that because of the nature of things and the nature of language that artists and poets are in a better position to actually um, do phenomenology than philosophers? I hope so, because we're really bad at it. Uh, that's a good question. I think, I, my, I mean, my sense is that um, language always, of course, does get in the way makes things very difficult. As soon as you say something, you sort of betray it. Um, but I think poets feel that as well, and, and painters probably do too. I think perhaps, I was thinking a little bit about how we, we can't get rid of that. Okay, So the difficulty that the painter is going to face and the poet is going to face are going to be difficulties precisely of having a place here on earth from which we do all of our work and all of our engagement with things. And so just before I forget what's in the background of this, you remember the point earlier in the talk where I said to, to really get the apartment all, all at once and show it as being here all at once, you have to make it be transparent. Similarly to to sort of get past all the difficulties that poets, artists, and phenomenologists face would be in a way to render us completely transparent. And that would be to undo the point of everything and to not have a place from which to think. So there's, there's always going to be a kind of impossibility, I think, of doing these things. What I think might be different between artists and poets, at least artists and poets in, let's say, relatively modern times, is the sense that there's a creativity that's constitutive of art and poetry, which is to say you always start from someplace with some kind of body, with some kind of language, with some kind of tradition, but I think poets and artists, at least nowadays, are very self-conscious that part of their effort is to create a new way 
of doing things from this tradition. And so the idea of overturning traditions is right there within art, painting, poetry, etc. And I think that's harder to do in philosophy because you, you, know, you go too far in that, you don't get a job. <laughs> or you start sounding completely nonsensical. Uh, but also, there's a different thing where you, when, when you, you know, when, when the poet speaks in an entirely new way, and people see, oh, that's poetry, they're willing to put the effort in to follow along and figure out what's going on here. And it's probably beautiful. And when Husserl, you know, tries to figure out a new way of speaking, it becomes tremendously hard to follow along. And um, he's much more caught in the very words that he's trying to overturn. So, so, so this is to say, I think there's a difference, but I think it might also be along with that creativity, Jim. I think um, a kind of engagement with things might be cultivated more in certain kinds of art practices versus certain kinds of philosophy. But I think the shared thing is trying to unlearn things. And that's, that's where I see engaging with painting for philosophers as a very good thing to do. So, I don't know, did, do you think that answered? Go against the grain, right? Yeah. Phenomenology is never over. Painting is never over. Thanks. Any other questions? I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about ultra things. And um, (laughs) uh, the particular idea I was wondering about was whether... There's there's a sense in which paintings themselves are ultra things. And okay, you're you're describing the moon as an ultra thing, um, and I, uh, from what you said, I take it that you mean something like, um, it's uh, it's a it's a thing that that uh, uh, we can't quite get a perspective on, or or you know our normal ways of getting perspectives on on situated things, such that we can walk around them and so on. It sort of defies that, and. Um, uh, uh, some of the things you said about scale made me wonder whether there might be ways of talking about ultra things in terms of uh, self-defining scales. Like there's a ways in which you, you can't situate an ultra thing in relationship to uh, the things around it except by a, a kind of scale that it sets or something like that, that there's, no, there's, there's a way in which it can't be measured by other things. And, and those features seem to remind me of what it's like to experience a lot of paintings. Like there's a way in which if you're looking at them primarily as objects in the on the wall or on the floor or whatever um or even as objects to traverse such that you, you know you have to sort of be mindful of how many steps you're taking and so on as you're walking across them there's i mean that could be revealing of something important about them but there's also a way in which you you get past that way of seeing them as objects sitting there in front of you and you enter into them and at that point it seems like they set their own scales and they set their own uh relationships to the things around them and i just wondered just on that train of thought, I wondered whether there, there might be a sense in which you could describe them as ultra things and along the lines you were describing the moon. Thanks, uh, David. Um, uh, David Chibata from Ryerson's philosophy department. Um, I think that that's a very good point, and I like your way of describing moving into the painting, moving beyond just engaging it as an everyday thing. 
and finding yourself conforming or moving with its scale. And we might think here again with the musical analogy. Like sometimes when you're just not with the rhythm of the music or you're not wanting to hear a draggy whatever, <laughs> you know, you're not in the right mood or rhythm, you, you can't really follow along with the music. And I think there's also a way in which you have to be sucked into the right scale of movement with a painting like Ewan's. Sometimes they could just be overwhelming or the Morandi might just be too delicate for you to deal with. So I think there is a way in which it does set its scale and I think it does that because of the way it embodies uh, an expressive imaginative encounter with the visual through setting up something like a small world within your world. Maybe we could put it that way. And so I do think you find yourself moving in a different way when you've clicked with the painting. You know, sometimes it takes a long time to figure out how to see a painting. And the transition between not being able to get it and being able to get it is like moving into something like a different world. But I think it's different than the moon as altar thing, because I would think the moon as altar thing is entirely beyond any kind of scale. Like there's just no way you can move with it. It's entirely beyond movement. And that's maybe where I was thinking back to Aristotle. Right? I think Aristotle is right to think that down here on Earth, we, th we experience things as changeable and mutable. And it's like when we get to something like the moon, it's just completely off the scale. It's just completely indifferent to the way you move around. It's just grinding around at its own rate entire, in a manner that's entirely indifferent to you. And that's the sense that I was trying to get at talking about this feeling of being chased by the moon. So there's no way you can click with it, and yet it's permanently there. And, and it's being completely beyond reach or beyond, beyond any kind of um, sense of changing engagement. I think that's what makes it an ultra thing. But still, I want to come back to your point about the painting. At the moment when it stops just being a thing in a gallery, it turns into something else. And I'm not sure what word would be good for that, but maybe an, an, an imaginative thing or an image thing or, or something of that sort. I don't, I don't really have a good word for it at that moment. But I think that 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 sort of sets up a taxonomy of phenomena that we engage with in very different ways. And, and part of that might also have to do with, um, I mean, there might be more subtle gradations there too, because that would also get us to notice the way that um, there's a feeling that we can encompass the everyday things around us. A mountain might be very hard to get around, but at least you can get to the other side. And there, I think there is a way in which, you know, if you thought you could get around to the other side of Patterson Ewan's painting to get what's making it really work, or if you thought that what you're really encountering here is something that you, you get at by digging into further, like another thing that you can master, you're just not really engaging with the painting as a painting. So there's a way in which it opens up sort of a window into something that's both here in the room and beyond that. I'd have to think about that more, but thanks for that question. 
Um, thank you very much. Um, I want to apply it to music, if, and I have a question for you. Okay. I've, um, it's been suggested that uh, Mozart, when he, when he composed, he had a very clear idea of where he was going, you know, what the end would look like, you know, yeah. uh, as opposed to like, the, the process Beethoven would use, where he did not necessarily have that clear vision. But he, he allowed, um, well, he got into the, the adventure, to use your word. Um, he, he allowed it to take him and, uh, and it unfolded for him. Would, you, would that suggest that Beethoven was more of a, uh, of a phenomenologist? <laughs> I, I mean, that, that's, that's a really interesting question. I can't imagine how I'd be able to answer <laughs> something like that. Especially because the testimony of people about their own creative processes is is so fascinating and also hard to sort out. Um, I don't really know what to say. I mean, insofar as I've been trying to use phenomenology very broadly as a kind of openness to things, it might just be Mozart is faster, <laughs> or something like that, or he's 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 got more of a an easy repertoire that he can play with, and he I think he is doing different things in Beethoven too. Just the coloration of the instruments maybe is more something that in certain pieces preoccupies him versus the overall narrative arc. I, I don't really know what to say, but it's something to think about. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I was also wondering about uh, ultra things. Can, can you hear me okay? Um, I was also thinking about ultra things, but maybe in a, in a slightly different context. Okay. Um, I was wondering whether some of the, the results of the adventures that you uh, take us on uh, may point to a role uh, for the ideal in perception after all. So it struck me that when you... Um, so when you talked about ultra things as... Um, so, so the moon is this enormous object, uh, which to us, in our limited perspective, seems to transcend uh, place and uh, and time too, in some ways. Um, could that be a kind of symbol for um, some for for some role that the universality plays in uh, in perception? So, uh, so we paint the moon. So, just the very fact that artistic creation is. Um, oriented in this way, right? We paint, we paint moons, we paint these ultra things. Um, could it be that the, something like the absolutely universal, like the, the thing that transcends time and place, has some kind of role to play in uh, our encounter with things, our being in the world? Mm -hmm. Thanks. That's a really nice question. Uh, and I want to think just a moment to try and give a good answer. Just reminds me, though, something with these, with these adventures. Part of this was to sort of um, warm you up to having your own adventures with you and see if any of these things seem plausible when you're you're up there in the gallery. Um, that is a really interesting point. That these things that themselves appear as beyond our usual place, that themselves teach us 
let's say, that they're very different than anything else that you've seen here on Earth. <clears throat> Those become something that we paint. Right? And that point that the moon itself teaches us that it's beyond our place. I mean, I, I think we can refer back to that, that point about Aristotle, that people like Aristotle and before had observed without any substantive telescopic instruments that, you know, that, that thing that I see up there just shows up in a very different way than anything else. And it itself sort of testifies to having a different role in the cosmos, and it testifies to the cosmos being ordered in a way that partitions it into different kinds of spheres. So it's like phenomenologically, experientially, within the sphere of transitory things that we encounter in everyday life, there's this other stuff that shows up, sort of breaks in from above and says, there's something beyond you, more permanent. And it is interesting that we end up painting it. And uh, I did want to make a remark, I think, about Ewan, that it seems to me that part... I hadn't thought about this before, but maybe now I'm noticing it, that I think part of the sort of wonder or magic of his paintings is I don't quite think that he entirely paints them as having that entirely universal transcendent role. Like they're not these cold, icy, standoffish kinds of things. You could imagine a, a painter taking that approach to painting the moon or painting the moon in relation to the earth that would sort of make you experience once again that the moon is this big thing off there and, and you're down here and you're tiny in relation to it. Actually, I want to just make a remark that I don't think we experience the moon as a big thing or it's not big in the way that mountains are big. It, it, it sort of exits the scale of big versus small things. It's got this permanency just hanging up there, being everywhere you are following you. But that, I think, precisely speaks to your point about it having a kind of standing that exceeds and transcends the usual. And so part of what I think is going on with Ewan is when, you know, like he goes to, well, it wouldn't have been Home Depot then or whatever, but he goes and gets a sheet of plywood and gouges it. And in this very mundane stuff, literally mundane stuff, he makes a moon appear and does it in a way that's bigger than you but not too much bigger than you. I think something else is going on. That's another sense of him bringing it down to earth. But I think coming back to your point, um, maybe we could say that things like the moon in painting and in poetry and in thinking and knowledge enterprises and so on sort of educate us into spontaneously using them as symbols of something like universality, unchangingness, etc., of an absolute. And because they're there above us when we walk out our door at night, they, they do sort of give us a sense of a cosmological order. And that's probably part and parcel. I mean, I guess part of what I could say here is part of what's down here on Earth, part of what's down here on Earth is this stuff that exceeds us because it's accessible to us from here. You know, you could imagine, for example, <coughs> on some planet that was permanently cloudy or whatever, and nobody ever saw this stuff beyond. Maybe you'd have a different sense of time and place or something like that in your culture until this one moment when the skies opened up and there's this thing there. It would be terrifying or something like that. I don't know. Thanks for that observation. Um, there seems to be uh, another aspect besides 
the thing aspect in Patterson Ewan's paintings, and that's the um, that you might like to speak to, which is that uh, there's the physics that there's the physics and the physical processes. So it's the process as opposed to the things. So, for example, the moon has craters because something plowed into it, and there's impact and and these rays also on the moon from impacts, and he's also impacting the wood. Uh, and so it's a very um, uh, kind of an analog. His process is an analog for the physical processes that give the moon its features. Do you have something to say about that? Uh, first of all, thanks uh, for that really nice observation. And that does help me with thinking about something that I, I don't think I did mention, which is like at a certain point in the way I was talking this through, you might think that what's really going on here is Ewan is making some sort of image that's meant to represent the moon. Not by means of a photograph, but by means of painting. And when I talk about him bringing things down to earth, it's sort of what's at stake in that is making a pictorial representation of something that would normally be very, very far away. But I... I think at some point I did mention that I thought what's important about his process is you know, that he does it through a kind of imaginative engagement with the moon. I don't think he's literally going out and looking at the moon. He's looking at depictions of it in our history and science books and so on. But then I think he's trying to figure out how to make it work in this scale of wood and paint. And I think it's a, it's a very imaginative bodily engaged kind of process and your observation I think um, sort of gives another dimension to that because it's almost like you're suggesting in some way his physical process of doing this with his body is sort of echoing some of the processes on the astronomical timescale of things impacting upon one another bodily. So that sort of might give some insight into his bodily imaginative process for doing this and also maybe some of the resonances that are there when we experience these paintings. Um, but also, again, the sense of bringing things down to earth. It's sort of like, hey, go and make your own. Uh, roll your own moon in your backyard. And sometimes when he's talking... Like, there's some things in the about other paintings where he goes down to the hardware store and he sees, oh, this could be such and such in a painting. Like this piece of chain link fence could serve such and such a role. And it really does seem like there's sort of an affinity between his process moving with things and the way things go in the world. And that might be what's maybe more unique to his painterly process in contrast with other painters. So there's a sort of working through the physical, physical process of things forming up in the world, like rivers and storms, and that what he's working out isn't so much the way things look visually or nearly the way they look visually, but the way they get worked out in things. So thanks very much for that. One last question? or Okay. Last question. Uh, 
thanks for your talk and for sharing your insights. Uh, that was that was great. Um, my question has to do back come back to the issue of thing versus ultra thing versus the potential for an infra thing. That is to say that there are things that we sort of appreciate that are that are that are ever present, like the moon, and there are things that we can interact with, like this chair. Um, and then there are things that we sort of barely perceive that, or that we don't take the time to pay attention to um, dust or mm-hmm. you know these sort of um, ubiquitous things that that uh, that we don't that we also don't interact with that are always there. And is there potential in this model for of phenomenology to 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 address these sorts of things and uh, and to and for that to be part of our appreciation and, and, and of art? Yeah, I think that's that that's a really great question. I think artists all the time are getting us to <coughs> appreciate things that we don't usually notice. Um, so here in the Mirandi, I think one of the things that we don't usually notice is the space between things or the minusculeness of space between things and, and how that's important to what things are. Um, so in this painting, I think... Um, it's sort of like maybe he's getting us to notice the way that the definition of something, its delimitation, depends upon the slenderness of its adjacency to something else and the way it's crowded with something else. And another thing that we don't notice is the space between things. And a lot of painters try and paint the space between things. Uh, Merleau-Ponty, I think, has a, a nice discussion of Giacometti's sketches and the way that, in, in his view, there's an emphasis not on the people in the paintings, uh, in, the, in the sketch, but the space between the things in the sketch. Or he also draws that out, uh, you know, the Giacometti sculptures, um, where there are multiple of these slender fingers, uh, figures in, in, in sort of a plaza, um, you know, these very tiny stick figures, and you get to appreciate the way the space between human bodies and the ways that we sort of repel and come together and dance with one another in our everyday movements is part of who we are. And, and so I think this, this notion of um, infra things or things that are usually not noticed, I do think that's something, coming back to Jim's uh, initial question, that's something that poets and painters and I think phenomenologists also want to attend to. So poets working on the, the spaces between words is important to what the words are and the silences and the gaps and, and so on. So there's, there are all sorts of... I guess just coming back to the initial point about um, not doing a paint-by-numbers approach to things and not presuming your frameworks, there are all sorts of dimensions of the way things are that we usually don't notice because we sort of seize on what's easily noticeable, which are these clear and distinct things that we see around us. And we take that to be the real stuff and just get hung up on it and forget how they come out of deeper relationships of movement, place, spaces between things, gaps, time, etc., etc. And that's what I think phenomenologists as philosophers and painters and poets and filmmakers and musicians and all sorts of other people are also engaging themselves with in ways that get us to notice them anew. And I, I think that's really exciting. So, I guess that's it. That was an excellent ending. What, what wonderful questions, too. And uh, Jim, thank you so much for suggesting David. You were right. He is absolutely superb. Oh, well, thanks. Many <laughs> just, um, 
it's interesting when you're talking about drawing and you're talking about the spaces between things, because I know when you're learning to draw, you often, we refer to it as negative spaces, because you have such a preconceived idea, for example, if you're drawing a body, of what the arm looks like. But you don't have a preconceived idea about what the shape is. So if you draw that, then you'll get the proportions right. So um, I've always had a very strong instinct with Ewan to, to not think too much, to receive him viscerally and to be open to him. And I, I realize it's probably intuitively in some way right and, and to wonder. And I wish, you know, I went in the gallery with him. I had no idea all these things were going through his head when we were walking <laughs> through the gallery. But what I wish people would do is you see people take one minute to go around a whole gallery. Well, you need half a day in front of one painting to really have all these reflections. So... I'd like to thank you so much for coming, and when will you come again? <laughs> There's some other people in the audience. Who, Good. Well, could like... they all please speak to me? Because I think this is wonderful, and it's a wonderful way of looking at and thinking about art, or feeling art, or whatever you want to, to say about it. At this point, I'd like to tell you about a couple of things we have coming up that are not completely unrelated. On May 8th, we have um, a psychiatrist who is here from England, and there's, there's a big move in various places to incorporate the arts and humanities into medical training. And he's here for a conference <clears throat> at U of T on that. And he's going to lead a ward round at the AGO. It'll be looking at artists as di- diagnosticians of culture, which I think is not entirely unrelated oh, to what you're talking about. And the other talk we have coming up is on May 18th. Um, and that is Luke Sant, who's a professor at Bard College. He uh, also writes for the New York Times. And he will be talking about Robert Frank, who is one of the artists in our Abstract Expressionist exhibition. So thank you very much, David. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.